Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Let's read these together and then we'll pray. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very fine, costly oil of spikenard. Then she brought the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do to them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of worship that we see. We pray that we would be stirred to, to worship you, to spend time with you. We invite you to conform us, to change us. Father, would you be so kind and gracious to send your Holy Spirit right now to lead us and guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. What's the most important thing about you? I would suggest to you that this morning, it's what you worship. It's what and whom you worship. God's word tells us that we become like what we worship. Whatever we give our affection and our attention to, that is going to form us, to mold us, to make us. A.W. Tozer has a great quote on worship. He says, without worship, we will go about miserable. Isn't that true? Days where I'm not worshiping the Lord, not focused upon the Lord, I am a miserable creature to be around for sure. Jack Hayford, he said this, he said, Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. He got it right. Who we worship, it changes us and transforms us. In this last week of Christ, the last few days leading up to his crucifixion, we find Mary pouring out this expensive ointment upon the head of Jesus, she stands out as an example of genuine worship. But also on the contrast, we find Judas Iscariot, who's the antithesis to worship, who's the very opposite of worship. Even though he's around Jesus in that place of being a disciple, he isn't worshiping the Lord. So our prayer this morning is we would grow in genuine worship. Verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they may take him by trickery and put him to death. The Feast of the Passover leading into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is the Passover? It takes us back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. The children of Israel are slaves 
in Egypt. God is bringing plagues upon the Pharaoh. The last plague is the death of the oldest son. Moses speaks to the children of Israel, says, take the lamb, kill the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the door of your home, then judgment will pass over. Thus we have the Passover feast. Israel was then to celebrate it every year with the death of a lamb. Nisan on the 14th and 15th. Nisan is March or April for us on the Jewish calendar. After the Feast of Passover, it would lead right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As the Feast of Passover ends, they would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they would cleanse their house of all leaven, of all yeast, of all gluten. No, not really, but yes, on the yeast. Symbolizing that their hearts were to be right before the Lord. Is it coincidence that Christ is betrayed during the Feast of Passover? After celebrating the Passover with his disciples, that he would then be taken to his trial and crucified? No, because Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. It's his blood that was shed for us that causes judgment to pass over. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ is the fulfillment of unleavened bread as well. What can really purify us of sin? That yeast being a symbol of sin. It's only Christ. It's only his death and his resurrection upon the cross. They're wanting to take Jesus by trickery. That's what the end of verse 1 tells us because they can't take him through justice. They have no valid claim in which to be able to arrest Christ, to crucify Christ. In verse 2, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So during these feasts, they're planning this, but they're saying, I don't know if we can pull it off during the feast because the people will riot. The chief priests and the scribes were jealous of the people's affection and afraid of their anger. One of the reasons they wanted to kill Christ was because they didn't like the fact that everyone was following Jesus instead of them. But they also find themselves in a place where they're afraid of their anger. They're an example of a group that's wanting the praise of men instead of the praise of God. Verse 3, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. As you know, Christ would leave Jerusalem and go to Bethany during this last week of his life. Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' sibling group live in Bethany, but also this man Simon the leper. Very interestingly, he's only mentioned in this event. Two places in the New Testament, Matthew 26, Mark 14, parallel passages. All we know about him is he's called the leper and he opens up his home to Jesus. Now we assume he has probably been healed by Christ at some point prior to this. That he doesn't still have leprosy because he wouldn't be in his home. He would be living outside of the camp and outside of Bethany and outside of his city. So most likely this is the appreciation dinner. This is with those that love Christ, his disciples. We also know from John 12 that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are at this gathering as well. It's at this moment that we find Mary doing this. As he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. John 12, verse 3, you may want to write it down, tells us that this is Mary. 
As we study the New Testament, there's a lot of Marys. There's a lot of Marys today. So which Mary are we talking about? We're talking about Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The same woman that sat at the feet of Jesus, that made it her priority to sit at the feet of Jesus and worship. And now here we find her just moments before Christ's betrayal, trial, crucifixion. She decides to take this very expensive ointment that's in a flask and to pour it upon the head of Jesus. As we meditate through this section of Scripture, we're going to highlight a few things about genuine worship. And the first is, number one, if you're taking notes, worship is costly. Worship in its very nature, as we understand what it means to worship the Lord, it costs us something. We read that it was worth 300 denarii, which is about a year's salary. Could you imagine taking your year's salary, whatever it is, and blowing it in about 15 minutes. How long did it take to pour out this ointment upon Jesus' head? Five minutes? Three minutes? The smell, I'm sure, filled up the room for several hours, but she decides to take a risk here. She decides to invest something that's very costly to her and to pour it upon the head of Jesus. When we think about worship, we go back to Genesis chapter 22. It's the first time the word worship is mentioned in all of Scripture. As we study the Bible, there's a principle of first mention. If, if marriage is mentioned for the first time, we look at that word and it unlocks marriage for us. If we look at worship, the first time it's mentioned, it unlocks it for us. Genesis 22, Abraham finally receives his promised son Isaac, after waiting and waiting and waiting, God speaks to him and says, take your son and go offer him upon a mountain that I will show you. In amazement, Abraham obeys immediately. He wakes up in the morning, he grabs Isaac and a few servants, and he he says this and he declares as, as they're walking and God shows him the mountain that he used to offer up his son Isaac and he declares to his servants, stay here, The lad and I, the the son and I, we're going to go and worship and come back to you. He believed that even if he was to kill his son in obedience to God, that God would raise him from the dead because this was the promised son. But that's the first time that the word worship is used. In this context of Abraham being called by God to offer his son upon the altar, as he's getting ready to kill Isaac, God speaks and says, Abraham, stop, and a ram is caught in the thicket. That's what God desires in worship, that we would give what is most valuable to us, what's most costly to us, and we would put it upon the altar. In Romans 12, it tells us, based on the mercies of God, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. What do we have of great value to be able to offer to God? It's our very being. It's our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hands, our feet. But it's a response to the mercy of God. If worship seems too costly to us this morning, I think we have the wrong focus. Because when we look at God giving us his son to die upon the cross, a brutal death for our sin, then anything that I would give to the Lord in return is not costly compared to what he's already given to us. We love him. We worship him because he's first loved us. We don't want to give God our leftovers in our worship. We don't want to give him the leftover of our time, the leftover of our money, the leftover of our our being. I'm going to fit everything into my life. 
And then if a relationship with God fits inside of that, great. No, we say the relationship with God comes first and everything else flows out of that. Jesus put it this way, seek first the kingdom, seek first Jesus, seek first worship, and all of these things will be added unto you. So worship is costly. We don't offer up to the Lord something that costs us nothing. What, what's really valuable to us? So oftentimes it's our time, isn't it? Time is so short. Don't have a lot of time. So investing in worship is to invest time with the Lord, to spend with him. So we see in Mary this tremendous example of offering a costly gift to the Lord. In verse 3, but there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. So 300 denarii was the minimum. Put it on Craigslist, who knows what might happen. And given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Second thing about worship is it's risky. Worship is risky. This is not the place that we would think Mary would be criticized. This is not the Temple Mount. It's not the chief priests. It's not the scribes, the Pharisees. She's among the disciples. She's among those who are following Jesus Christ. But they look at her worship, and they're indignant. In the Greek, this word indignant means that they're snorting. They're so angry that they're they're snorting out of their noses. Like an angry horse. It's a very strong word. At the end of verse 5, it says, they criticized her sharply. And you shouldn't have wasted it. You shouldn't have poured it out upon Jesus' head. You should have sold it. And then you could have given the money to the poor. It seems with worship that it gets criticized. We look at David's life where the Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines, this box that represented God's presence with the nation of Israel. It's being brought back into Jerusalem and David is worshiping all the way, dancing before the Lord. He's in an ephod, which was the garment of the priests, the common garment of the priests. What was his wife doing? She was looking out the window, despising her husband. This is not very kingly. You're bringing shame to the crown. The scripture then notes that Michael, his wife, remained barren the rest of her years. David probably chose not to have a relationship with her from that point forward, but I think there's a point made in scripture. You want to be barren? Criticize worship. You want to be unfruitful in your relationship with God? Look at other people who are worshiping him and criticize them. Who was the source of this criticism? John tells us in his gospel, it was Judas. So as I look at this passage, I go, do I see Mary in myself? Do I see the heart of a worshiper in me? Do I see Judas in me? Is there part of Judas that is also in me? And am I criticizing worship? Am I looking around at times like this and saying, do they really mean it? Is this just emotionalism? Why are they raising their hands to God? Why are they sacrificing in this way? But then back to the main point, church, brother, sister in Christ, we may be afraid to worship God the way that God is leading us to because we're afraid of the risk. We're afraid of the ridicule. We're afraid of being sharply criticized. Maybe it's going to come from your spouse or your parents or your brother or your sister, young people. You go, man, if I really love the Lord on my high school campus, on my college campus, I'm going to get criticized. I'm going to get ridiculed. 
in our workplace, we might be in a place of going, you know, I don't know if I want to just step out and worship in this way. We all face that. We all, we all battle that. Go for it. Worship the Lord. It's worth the criticism. Don't hide the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Mary's willing to do that and anticipate some of the sharpest criticism might come from the people of God. Worship is risky. Verse 6, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble me? She has done a good work for me. Jesus defends her worship. He says, leave her alone. I can almost picture Mary looking up into the eyes of Jesus, being so touched that Christ would come to her defense. Jesus will defend your worship. You may be criticized by believers, definitely by the world, but Jesus defends your worship. It means something to him. He says, she has done a good work for me. That word good in the Greek means noble or beautiful. Some Bible translations even translate it as she's done a beautiful work for me. Christ's heart is touched by her worship. Why do you think this gift meant so much to Jesus? I think because Mary's gift contained the greatest ingredient, and that's love. Love. Yes, it had great monetary value, and it was costly, but it was coming from a heart of love. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us if there's not love in our gift, it's nothing. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a claiming symbol. And though I give the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Our youngest two children, they're four and six, coming up on five and seven. And they're in this habit right now of writing us cards and drawing us pictures, Amber and I, and putting it on our pillow. Eileen's in first grade. She's learning to write and learning to read and is really enjoying being able to, to write sentences and, and write words. So we're finding these wonderful pictures with things like, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. Yesterday, I came to my pillow about mid-morning, and here was this drawing that she had done, and then she put some Bible verses on it. She says, I'll praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And she even had the reference, Psalms, Psalms 139. I go, oh, man, wow. Wyatt, he's four, and he likes to draw and color. And so his, what do his look like? Well, monsters and dinosaurs and all these things. And he puts it on our pillow, and you, you clearly know that this is, this is from, from Wyatt. That's way better than $100 on the pillow, right? Why? Because it's a gift of love. Kent Hughes, in his commentary in this section of Scripture, he tells about a time in his family where his wife had won a very ornate recipe box. And she valued it, and she treasured it, and it was, it was hand-decorated, motivated her to take all of her recipes out of a drawer and organize them in this recipe box, and she always kept it in a special place in the kitchen. Some time goes by. It's her birthday. Some of her lady friends take her out for her birthday. She comes home, and she notices the box is not in the kitchen. 
It's not in its special, special place. But she sees her young son with his hands behind his back. You guessed it. He got a hold of the recipe box. He dumped out all the recipes into the trash. The trash got taken out with the trash company gone. He removed all of the ornate decoration around the box, wrapped it in tin foil, put a nickel in the box, lifted it up to mom and said, Mom, I know you love this box. Happy birthday. Over time, it became her most treasured possession. <laughs> to the point where Kent Hughes says, if the house is burning down, my wife is grabbing her Bible and that box. Right? Why? Because it was given with love. It was given with love. That's why this gift meant so much to Jesus, and it's the same in our lives. It's not just going through the motions. It's not saying, you know, how much money can I come up with? How much time can I come up with? It's the heart. And through this motivation of the heart, Mary's gift was a spontaneous response to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was moving her. God was in this. This is a very important moment in the life of Christ, and she follows the leading of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever have those moments where you feel the Holy Spirit leading you to do something in your relationship with God, but you're saying, no, that's just too crazy. That's out of the box. And God's going, go for it. Go, walk, go for a walk and pray. Go for a drive and pray. Go tell that person about Jesus. Go give something away, all because God is, is leading you. Also, with this gift, we find that it was not dominated by practicality. That's part of what brought the criticism. It wasn't practical. It was motivated by love, and Jesus defends it. In verse 7, For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. Third thing about worship that we highlight this morning is worship is timely. Timely. Jesus points out, time. He says, you will not always have me with you. He's going to be crucified. Rise again, ascend to be with the Father. They will not have them, have Jesus in this physical sense. He's saying, Mary seized the moment. She got the time factor right. She realized what was taking place and that this was an important moment in time to respond with this gift, to pour this oil upon the head of Jesus. Worship is meditating upon who God has been in the past, who he will be in the future, but it's also responding to what he's doing in our lives this morning, how he's been faithful this week, how he's been with us today. As we sing to the Lord, he is here. He's with us. He's doing something in me. He's doing something in you, and it's responding to that in real time. Worship is timely, but with worship... We have to take advantage of the opportunity. Those songs that we sang, even just a moment ago, they're gone. That was a moment in time that we could seize to worship the Lord. This afternoon is going to take place. This evening is going to take place. And when we have those windows of opportunity to worship God, we've got to take it. Worship is timely. This is a moment that I'm going to bow down before the Lord. This is a moment that I'm going to give my affection to God. I think Satan goes overtime on those moments of worship, doesn't he? It's so easy to be focused at the movie theater, but it's so hard to be focused at church, isn't it? Sometimes it's very difficult to enter into a time to sing to the Lord. 
It can be difficult to focus upon the word of God or to focus upon prayer. Satan doesn't want us worshiping. Why? Because he knows that's going to impact you more than anything else. You become like what you worship. He's wanting to take our affections in another direction. So sometimes we fight through and we say, I don't feel like worshiping. I love in the Psalms, David's oftentimes speaking to his soul and he's saying, come on, soul, worship the Lord. Come on, soul, sing to the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. He's speaking to himself, saying, don't let this moment go. God is good. Eric, whether you feel it or not, God is good. So come on, it's time to worship the Lord. It's timely. We want to seize the moment to worship God. In verse 8, she had done what she could. She had come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. She did what she could. And she anointed Christ's body for burial. I don't believe that Mary fully understood this, but she would. One of the amazing things about Mary, I think she should definitely be one of the heroes of the faith, is she was at the trial of Christ. She was at the crucifixion of Christ. She was at the resurrection of Christ. She was in the upper room praying when the Spirit descended. What a faithful woman. She watched Christ be crucified. Think about her perspective of the oil being upon Christ's head, then witnessing the crown of thorns being placed upon him. Wow, powerful. This physical body that Christ had, she anointed and she prepared for crucifixion and for burial. What a moment in time. The creator of the universe, all God, in human flesh, just about ready to be crucified for our sins. And Mary got it right and she prepared his body for burial. In verse 9, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. First thing, fourth thing to note about worship is worship has permanency. Permanency. Jesus says, wherever this gospel is preached, this woman's love for the Lord, Mary's love for the Lord, is going to be spoken of as a memorial, as a legacy. How is Mary's love connected to the gospel? How come when we talk about the gospel, we're going to talk about Mary's life? What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures. That those that believe and trust in the gospel are saved. Mary's life is an example of what happens when someone's life is touched by the gospel. In response to the gospel, we should love like Mary loves. We should have this kind of contagious affection for Jesus Christ. I want you to consider for a moment, what's the legacy of your life? What's the message of your life? Whether we like it or not, we are giving a message. Our life is giving a message. We will be remembered for something, some priority, some love, some affection. It's your worship that's spoken about at your funeral, at your memorial service. Oh, he loved to fish. He loved the, the Broncos. He loved hamburgers. Mm, right? He loved his family. She did great in her career. Nothing wrong with those things. But above all of that, wouldn't it be great that the memorial of our life is, oh, they loved Jesus. They worshiped Jesus. Our life is filled with mistakes. It's filled with failure. 
filled with sin. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that's going to continue. We will make mistakes, we'll sin, we'll fall short. But above all of that, to say, yeah, they had their shortcomings. Times they got angry. Yeah, they tended to be grouchy. But they trusted Christ for salvation. They trusted not in their own works, but the work of Christ. And they loved Jesus. They were a worshiper. And I remember them getting up early to spend time in God's word. I remember them making sacrifices for others. I remember them on Sunday mornings being committed to to come to church. They were planted in the house of God. Thankfully, by God's grace, I have that with my parents. My parents were the first ones that were saved on both sides of the family. In their early 20s, early in their marriage, came to know Christ as their Savior. And both really loved the Lord. What stands out to me is memories of my mom in her relationship with Christ. We would be driving to school. I have an older brother, he's two years older, and younger sister, she's nine years younger. So there's young years, my brother and I are in the Ford Fairmont, getting carted off to school. Mom's driving, dad's at work. She's saying, all right, boys, let's pray. And she'd start to pray. She'd start every day off with, with praying in the cars, we would go to school. A lot of mornings, she would pray the armor of God over us. And I'm in the back seat going, like, oh, I've heard this a thousand times. You know, the helmet of salvation. Woo! You know, and just not really getting the reality of what was, what was taking place. When my brother was in school, and I wasn't yet quite in school, I, I can remember that I'm pretty young, dropping off my brother, and here would come this lady that I didn't know, and sit in the passenger seat of the car, and my mom and this other lady would just begin to pray. Just crowd to the Lord, and I have my crayons in the back seat, and I'm eating my fist. You know, like, when, when is this going to end? I want to get home, and I, I want to I play. Times that my mom would, would cook us dinner, and she wouldn't eat. And you're like, as a kid, you're like, what in the heck's going on here? Like, we're all hungry. I know you're hungry. Why aren't you eating? She wouldn't make a big deal of it. And she'd say, I'm fasting and praying today. In the long run of my life, that really impacted me. That really showed me the value of Jesus. That's her legacy. That's what she passes on. That's what she's passed on to my brother, my sister, all of her grandkids. She loves the Lord. Is she a perfect woman? Is my dad a perfect man? No, they'd be the first to tell you that. But they love the Lord. And so it's a challenging question for us is, well, what's my legacy? What am I really passing on with my life? And we don't have to make it complicated. It's just got to be real, doesn't it? It's just got to be genuine. And to say, I want to love Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. I want to pour out my affection to Jesus. And people are going to notice that. Our families are going to notice that. Our children are going to notice that. It's never too late to start. If you say, you know what? In my life, that's not where I've been, even though that I'm a believer. Man, it can start today to begin to worship the Lord in that way. Worship has permanency. We contrast it with Judas in verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. 
This is the break the chief priests and the scribes were waiting for. Couldn't take Jesus in a public place because of the uproar of the people. But with Judas' betrayal, they would find Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane, a private place. Worship is not merely association. We've seen some things that worship is and worship has. But worship is not just being in close proximity to Christ and the things of God. Judas witnessed all of these miracles of Christ. He walked with Christ, saw the feeding of the 5,000, saw healings take place, demons cast out of people's lives. But yet at this moment, when it really matters, he betrays Jesus for money. We have Mary surrendering money to the Lord out of worship. We find Judas, out of betrayal, gaining money out of forsaking Christ. I'd like to try to speak to your heart for just a moment here, because I think that this applies to some. As you look at your life, you go, you know what? I have been around the things of God. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you've come to church a lot. In your heart of hearts, maybe you know there's a friend or a family member that really does have this contagious relationship with Jesus, and you come to appease them. You know if you don't go to church, you make your wife really bad. If you don't come to church, your, your husband gives you that look and gets really quiet. Your parents maybe look at you with some disapproval, you think, because you haven't come, come to church. Maybe you've read the scriptures, but in your heart of hearts, you know you haven't surrendered to Christ. What if Judas, in this moment where he watches Mary pour out the love upon Jesus, that he allows his heart to break. He goes, man, I'm all wrong here. I'm criticizing her. I'm jealous of her. For some reason, he feels like he's not getting the fair shake. He walks into the chief priest and the scribe, and he says, okay, I'll do this. Go ahead and give me the money, and he betrays Christ. This could be your moment. As we go into worship, as we end with this last song, it's going to be ministry team here in the front. And for you to come and receive Christ as your Savior, salvation is an issue of the heart. Have you given your heart to Christ, your love to Christ? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again? Don't assume just because you're at church, just because you're around the things of God, that it means that you're saved. So what is genuine worship? Genuine worship is costly. It's risky. It's timely, but it has permanency. In my life, where do I see myself and Mary? Do I see some genuine worship in my life? And where do I see Judas in me? And I've got to tell you this morning, I know that I need to worship Jesus. I know, like A.W. Tozer says, that I go around most miserable when I'm not worshiping. But that often doesn't move me to worship. You know what moves me to worship? is encountering Jesus afresh, encountering his love afresh, to be at awe of the one who would love me so much while I'm a sinner that he would come and die upon the cross, that he's here with me. So as we conclude this morning, let's make it our prayer to encounter Christ, to see him more clearly, then respond to it. So would you stand with me and let's pray and we're gonna move into this last song.
Jesus, we don't want to play games with you. We don't want to simply come to church and be religious. We want to encounter you afresh. We want to worship you. We do speak to our souls. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Father, you're good, you're gracious, you're kind, you're merciful. And as we sing, we do ask that you would reveal yourself afresh to us. That not only in this moment, but throughout today, throughout this week, moving forward in our lives, that we would be greater worshipers.